0: We are now in the breakfast room at the astronaut quarters where the STS-31 crew is having breakfast. Colonel Charlie Bolden, the pilot on this mission for the space shuttle discovery. T-minus ten, go for main engine start. We are go for main engine start. T-minus six, five, four, three, two, One and liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe.
1: Mission Control, Houston. Roll program. Roger roll, Discovery. The roll maneuver puts the vehicle in the proper launch plane.
2: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, So There I Was which is how all great aviation stories start. This is episode 36, titled, A Couple Gorillas
0: in Your Chest. That's crazy. <laughs> Who would put gorillas in their chest? <laughs> Who would do that? Right? Well, whatever. Great... that's what it feels like when you're accelerating downrange in uh, a space shuttle. This is an amazing interview. Another uh, first
2: for us, first astronaut, right? Right. Hopefully, one of many. And I hope we get to have him on again, because we just got cut short of time. And right. he had so
0: many stories. Retired Major General, Charlie Bolden, United States Marine Corps, call sign Panther, took us through the early years, flying attack jets in Vietnam, going to the Naval Academy. And the interesting thing about that, Fig, he was not the least bit interested in flying. He had gone for a flight when he was a kid and wasn't impressed. He That's wanted right. to be a grunt. <laughs> That's right. Then he spent a couple nights in the cold woods of Virginia in January, and he went, ah. Maybe an indoor job isn't so bad after all. Light school sounds pretty good. It does. Yeah. <laughs> so this is a fascinating one, folks. It's We're not going to bore you. Panther is a font of awesome knowledge. Car. He actually went on to become the administrator of At NASA. Night. We'll have him back and talk about that. The In the meantime, sit back. Did. Don't sit on the ejection handle.
1: On we'll
2: the tanker.
0: It. Enjoy it. Here it comes. Episode 36.
2: Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just
1: kidding.
2: No matter. Well, there I was crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't exactly fun.
3: So there I was.
0: That's how every great aviation tale begins. This is repeat here in New Hampshire, and I'm here with my co-horsted fig. Hey, I'm in uh,
2: Kansas City for a few more hours, and I am really excited to say we have with us today
0: Panther. Welcome, Panther.
3: Good to be with you. Thanks very much.
0: So Panther, a very distinguished guest today, and we've been very excited to have you on. So thank you very much. Graduated from the Naval Academy, flew uh, more than 100 missions uh, in the A6 Intruder in Vietnam in combat, test pilot. Flew one of those squirrely airplanes without an engine called a space shuttle on four occasions.
2: It had and an engine?
0: It had a bunch of engines. Well, yeah, but yeah, you know, once once they went out, they didn't relight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at least they weren't supposed to. Uh, <laughs> and then ultimately the NASA administrators. So great to have you here with us, Panther. Uh, can you wow. tell us, first of all, when you were a, a little boy growing up, the Apollo program was... Uh, in full swing, uh, as you were in your high school years, what, uh, uh did you ever get to think you were going to get to do that? And how'd you get interested in aviation? I,
3: I never had any interest in going to space and I never had any interest in aviation. In fact, at the age of eight, I had actually gone up on a light civil airplane with a couple of my classmates. One of my classmates' father was a Tuskegee airman and uh, he owned no way. A, a little Cessna or something. I don't even know what it was. And, you know, growing up in Columbia, South Carolina, he kept it at the local airfield at um, Owens Field. And he took three of us up to fly one day. And I came back totally unimpressed. And and as time went on, I said, okay, when I graduated from high school and finally got accepted to the Naval Academy, which is another story for another day, I knew two things. That's all I knew. I knew I was not going in the Marine Corps under any circumstances because I thought Marines are crazy. You know, I living in (laughs) Columbia. We saw the the young graduates of recruit training come up from Paris Island and destroy oh, my sure. the park in my city. And so I did not want to be a Marine. And <laughs> the second thing was I was not going to fly because I had had that one experience and I'd, I'd been in commercial airplanes, but nothing else. And I just thought flying was inherently dangerous. And I used to tell people my mother didn't raise a fool. So those were the only two things I knew when I went <laughs> to play with them.
2: Beautiful. And, and that just didn't seem to work out. Uh, based on it, your it, it, it awesome aviation out.
3: career <laughs> it didn't work out at all for a number of reasons my first company officer and you all know what a company officer is but for the some in the audience who may not it was it was the one commissioned officer each company at the naval academy and it 4000 person brigade back then it was divided into 36 companies and each company had a commissioned officer who oversaw these 150 young midshipmen who literally ran the brigade but but my company officer was Major John Riley Love, a, a young, energetic infantry officer who I got to know and respect and idolize. And um, he was only there my first year and, and I, I saw, didn't see him again until after I graduated. But graduation time rolled around and I looked back and I said, you know, I can fly airplanes, I can drive ships. I can do anything but i want to be like major love i want to be a an infantry officer and i want to go to vietnam and defy the law of averages for the life expectancy of a second lieutenant that's how fiery Oh my I
2: gosh <laughs> oh so my that
3: gosh. got me to the marine corps and then as you both know um it got me to quantico for the basic school and everything went well until my three-day war at the end of basic school end of november early december it was cold and freezing and snow and ice on the ground. And I don't like cold. And I was afraid no, that if I laid down in a sleeping bag and put my head down, I'd die of hypothermia. So I volunteered for Firewatch for three days and, and did not sleep. And um, <laughs> came back from the three-day war and told, told my company officer, it was Lieutenant Colonel McElroy from somewhere in Alabama. I said, Colonel McElroy, I know I said, I don't want to take my aviation option out of the Naval Academy, but I changed my mind. I'm going to Pensacola, so I went to sunny Pensacola. Florida. <laughs> First time I got different this time. First time I got in a T-34 and we took off, and I could not believe it. I mean, the, just the feel of lifting off the ground was mesmerizing, and I fell in love with aviation immediately. That's awesome. You know how you're impressed by different people. Um, I was drawn to the A-6 Intruder because of the mission. Uh, ended up doing that. And, and one of my instructors in flight school had been another Marine, Pete Field, down in Kingsville, Texas, who was an F-18 guy, or at least was the program manager for the F-18 and development, was at flown F-4s. And uh, he got me interested in being a test pilot. So that became the the next thing I wanted to do. And it took years to do that, but but got there and eventually got drawn toward the space program, not to it, but toward it. Okay. I met uh, the late, great Dr. Ron McNair, who was another black kid from South Carolina. We did not know each other, but he was selected in the first group of shuttle astronauts. And I met him and he asked me if I was going to apply for the program. I told him not on your life. And he looked at me real strange. He said, why not? You got everything. I said, Ron, they'd never pick me. And he said, you know, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard. How do you know? (laughs) If you don't (laughs) have, and he embarrassed me more than anything else because I'd forgotten what my mom and dad, what all of our parents tell us all the time. You know, you can do anything you want to do if you set your mind to it and you're willing to study and work. And I, I'd forgotten, so I, I went home and told my wife I was going to apply for the space program. I said I don't stand a snowball's chance in hell, but I got to put an application in, and that led to my getting nominated by the Marine Corps and interviewed by NASA and getting selected. So
2: how about that? Yeah, very cool. Quick question. I'm making an assumption and I shouldn't. Uh, You went to test pilot school, obviously. So you had some kind of engineering background from the Naval Academy?
3: That's another story of how good failure can work out sometimes. <laughs> gradu- I graduated, my class was the first class that was allowed to select majors. They didn't have any majors before that. Everybody was a, was a naval en- naval oceaneering or something like that. Okay, okay. But so we were allowed to select majors, and I wanted to be an electrical engineer. So uh, I took all the courses required, and then my junior year, I mean, I was an honor student wearing stars and all kinds of stuff. And I had to take two courses called Electromagnetic Waves Theory One and Two. Ow,
2: that, that sounds bad.
3: I struggled through <laughs> one with a C. They only had one professor at the whole Naval Academy who taught this, and he and I, we were never going to see eye to eye. So, second yeah. <laughs> I started, most of the folk, the folk in the class were were. Smarter than I was, so they didn't even come back for the second. The second semester, <laughs> I struggled through, nope. through the second semester. Got an F, which no. Makes, although I although I was an honor student, I had to go before the academic board because you you get an F at the Naval Academy and you're going to the academic board and they're going to determine whether or not you should stay. Right. Wow. So the admiral yes. asked me why I was taking the course. I said, you know, I want to be an electrical engineer and it's required. And he said, okay, well, let us deliberate for a little while. We'll call you back in. And I came back in. They said, okay, because you've been so good in academics up until now, we're going to give you an option to expunge that F from your record so you can retake the course. And I stopped him. I said, Admiral, I could take this course for the next 11 years (laughs) and I'd get 11 Fs. I said, I'll take my F Uh, and I'll just accept my minor in electrical science. So I have the engineering background, but not the degree to show for it.
2: Okay. so that was, go, not then, <laughs> was not well, a I showstopper then getting in a test. I always thought you had to have an engineering degree to get accepted a test
3: pilot. You do not. You, um, we have, uh, have horticulturists and uh, the, the one oh thing gosh. about uh, you know test pilots, we got to have a thousand hours of high performance. Well, it depends on what community you're from. You have to have a thousand okay. hours of flight time. And, um, but the engineering degree is not required. You've just got to be able to demonstrate the fact through your performance in the fleet. That you've got the you know the the wherewithal to be able to care to to pick up the curriculum. Gotcha. I, mean, well, I had some agronomy majors and stuff like that. So
2: I applied. I applied. I don't know four years in a row and and never got it because I figured well I didn't have an engineering degree. Everybody said I
3: got to have an engineering
2: degree. Obviously, I was just a moron. They didn't want me. <laughs> well,
3: <laughs> I, I got you beat. I applied. I think six years in a row, and that's <laughs> 20 a years, as you remember. Yeah, and I finally. When I came back from Vietnam, I, I recruited out in Los Angeles. I was a Noso. And it gave oh, yeah. me an opportunity to go to Southern Cal to USC. And I got a master's degree. And that's all the Marine Corps wanted. It just you know, I got a master's in systems management, which was sort of a hybrid between an MBA and a and an engineering degree. And so they okay. accepted me and sent me to test pilot school. So I'm like that's you, awesome. I couldn't get in. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Geez. Um, so uh, I've got a fork in the road. I've got two questions I want to ask you. I guess the first one is, did, I think you were gone from NASA by this time. Did did you ever run across Dave Brown, Dr. Dave Brown?
3: Dave Brown was a good friend. Dave was yeah, um, good. Okay. Doc, Dr. Dave was awesome.
0: Yeah. Dave and I went through Beville together.
3: Never we were served in together. the office with him, but everyone that I ever talked to after the Columbia accident, uh, they sang his praises. He was probably second only to, you ever hear of a guy named Sonny Carter? Yes. Sonny yes. was uh, another flight surgeon, aviator. He was, um, you know, he was always winning the top stick when he was with Trip Tree on the USS America as the flight surgeon. Right. I can't think of anything that Sonny didn't do well. So I I served with Sonny in the office before he was okay. killed. A, oh, in uh, a civilian, you know, going from Houston over to Augusta, Georgia or something on a, commercial
0: coach. right he was killed in that commercial air crash i think with senator tower
3: senator right? Tower, yeah
0: so yep. so dave and i went through bevel together and got Wayne together what a what a prince what a gentleman Wasn't uh and, yeah. and fun to be around and i went down and watched the launch for whatever reason i did not go back down to watch the recovery and take my son i'm grateful i didn't yeah yeah so I was just curious if you would ever cross paths with him uh, yeah one what a nice man and a, and oh, a yeah, terrible yeah. loss and Sonny, I guess was his mentor because he had been a flight surgeon, and Dave was like, well, I'm a flight surgeon I maybe I can, kind of my teacher learned sending me to flight school, and lo and behold, he did it but and kind of the reason I asked him I, as I recall, Dave had a, i think three attempts before he got selected into NASA, and he was getting kind of discouraged like you know I'll never make it, and they're like yeah they they just generally don't in those programs taking in on the first go rounds. But I wanted to back up a little bit and talk about Vietnam. Yeah, well that was my you took, st- you stole my thunder. There go you ahead. go. Stole your <laughs> thunder. Yeah. So I'm just curious, you know, you find yourself over there, you didn't have to worry about the cold. That was for sure. Oh no no uh, no
3: about it. Not at all.
0: So do you have anything that you can share with us, uh, what it was like first combat mission. I, I imagine a lot more night missions in the intruder than, uh, than you know, not.
3: than we, we started out and, and I need to understand um did both of you fly Harriers? Yes. Okay, yes. so when I got there, Nixon had already withdrawn all American forces from Vietnam. I, I got there in the summer of 1972, so late, okay. relatively late in the war, and what they had done was they had taken two F-4 squadrons, 115 and 232, had cycled them back from their bases. I think 115 was up in, in uh, Iwakuni, and 232 may have been on Hawaii but they came back into a place okay. called Nampong, Thailand, the Rose Garden. And 533 came down from Iwakuni and four CH-46s for search and rescue and two C-130s so the Air Force could get to the war because they couldn't make it from Thailand to Vietnam uh, and still drop bombs. So we had, we had two C-130s that escorted them to and from all the time. But, but we flew out of uh, the Rose Garden um, first few weeks, we flew mostly day, circle the wagons, you know, day VFR, circle around, drop, and that stuff. And then gradually we worked ourselves into night flying. And then a few months in, we did almost all uh, night ops, interdiction up into North Vietnam, and and just kind of left the bomb dropping down south to the to the F fours. Uh, ended up spending a night once before, right before the war, before I left the next year and. July of 73 in Benoit, where the last there were two American units. There was 211 and 311 flying A4s at the time. So mm-hmm. I spent the night in Benoit and could not wait to get out of there because they were, you may remember, right off the runway uh, at Saigon, Tonsonut, and they were getting rocketed. That We weren't getting right. rocketed in Thailand. <laughs> no, we were right making on. beer. <laughs> well, <laughs> they were amazing. getting rocketed. So I wanted to get back home. Oh, but I had right. a hydraulic failure and had to had to divert into there and they fixed me up. Nice. Oh, my gosh. Nice.
0: OK. Wow. But if you
3: we were asking about uh, my, I was scared to death on my first mission because we had we'd already lost an airplane. I My very first day in the squadron, um, I went out on an orientation flight and um, we flew over. Things were so quiet down south. Uh, You know, we did. There was no threat of MIGs. There was no anything. We didn't have any big triple A. We didn't think. And uh, so things were pretty calm down south of the DMZ. And we they flew me out, flew me up and down the DMZ or I flew while somebody gave me the tour. We flew over a and then came back and landed. And it was people were really somber on the flight line. And I, you know, we got out and said, hey, what's what's happening? They said, well, we just lost an airplane. And -hmm. I went, oh, shit, I just got here. And it turned out uh, we had had an airplane shot down over Kayson and uh, the, all the, the word that we got was that it was a 57, which just didn't make sense because we didn't think anything bigger than a, than a zoo 23 was down South, but uh, it actually shot the wing off the airplane. And um, as it was going down, they saw one shoot and um, and saw that person being kind of carted off by the Vietnamese, you know, the North Vietnam, mm-hmm, right. hiking up to Hanoi. And um, that was one of those er- times when Intel got it wrong because the word we got was that the, the guy that was alive was the, was the pilot, Lenny Robinson, who was a guy about one of your heights, I imagine, blonde, um, big, thick guy. The bombardier navigator was a guy by the name of Al Kroboff. And Al looked like something out of uh, you know a horror show. Big, tall, gangly guy had played <laughs> basketball for the Citadel. Uh, wore horn rim glasses and everything, couldn't see in front of his face. <laughs> and it turned out uh, two years, almost two years later, when we had our first squadron reunion um, in Nashville, our C.O. was was the O.I. was the O.I.C. of the Naval ROTC unit there, and he said, uh, "Hey, I got a surprise for you." And the door opened and in walks Al Kroboth, the guy that we had been told was dead and right. it out Lenny Robbins yeah. the pilot never got out of the airplane. So Ugh. totally different people. And we never understood how, you know, how the Intel report was wrong, but, but Al Kroboff survived a year or so in Hanoi and then got out and came back, got out of the Marine Corps and went back home to New York and, and, and became a grave tender. His mom yeah. and dad ran a, a cemetery and oh he gosh. ran the cemetery for the family until he passed a few years ago.
2: So the aircraft that got shot down was over KSON, had been there. You passed
3: over it first. I had been there just before they got there to fly their bombing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And because, yeah. you know, we weren't, we didn't, all we were doing was touring. We didn't have any bombs on the airplane. We didn't have anything. It was just a, just a tour.
0: The area so, familiarization.
3: Yeah. Area fam.
0: Let's go to uh, to the test pilot. Then you got to fly A sevens, E A sixes, oh. which is the four seat version. Oh, hang on, I'm okay, big so, time. So out another ass- I, I went I want- too far ahead. Sorry, David. <laughs> no, no. It's,
2: I, this is all my list of things I I got to yeah. ask, and you just yeah. asked it, but I got to know this. So I did you was it navy test pilot school air force test pilot school did you have uh... i went
3: through the naval and, and we we are very particular it's the naval air test center and naval test pilot school i don't oh, care what the excuse
2: me is. sir i no, no, no. Very no. it's not
3: it's not you it's the navy that likes yeah. to say navy but it's not okay. navy naval it's the big school because we are the only school in the world that trains fixed wing uh, rotary, we, we have rotary wing. So te- Air Force only does fixed wing because they claim to be the aerospace test pilot school. They prepare people to go to space. We prepare people to be test pilots. And there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, just, a, just a slight difference. Nice. The only other place you could go and do a rotary wing curriculum was uh, the French test pilot school. You couldn't even do it imp- at, uh, eat, you know, at the empire test pilot school. So we got, People from all over the world through Pax River, which made it really great. And so the Rotary Wing curriculum was dominantly Army and foreign officers along with the Marines. And we had a couple of Navy guys, you know, who flew H-60s or back then, whatever else they were flying. But we had all, we had flight test engineer, fixed wing flight dynamics, systems, which was guys out of A-6s and uh, systems related airplanes, S-3s, stuff like that. Okay. And then Rotary Wing.
0: I, I think I know what the hardest part of test pilot school. So I'll ask what the second hardest part, the hardest part being which you had to decide which two hours you're going to sleep each night. So it, uh, you <laughs> <to study>. um, <laughs> uh what, seriously, what was the hardest part of, uh, of yeah, test pilot yeah, school?
3: Without a doubt, the acad- academics and, and show you how people make a difference, um, I thought I was not going to get out of test pilot school when I found out that one of the courses we were going to take was electromagnetic waves theory. ruh roll, (laughs) And I went, (laughs) I said, you know, I've been to this show once before. (laughs) But the guy who taught it was a guy named Jim McHugh, who was a young engineer who mainly taught rotary wing flight dynamics. But he was the one guy who taught electromagnetic waves theory. It was a breeze. He made it seem like, you know, you're in elementary school and it was ABCs. I found that sometimes it's not the student. Right. That the teacher has a lot to do with how well or if the student learns. And I breezed through the same thing that I had flunked out of at the Naval Academy uh, because of the... What? It had an absolutely (laughs) superb professor.
0: You see, yeah, I've always found that too. If you get a professor or a teacher that's interested in going, hey, look at this. This is really cool. And here's some of the fun stuff you can do with it. And here are the building blocks. Not... Not start, not putting the equation up on the board, solving it, and go, okay, now you do it. Well, P- Panther said
2: he was never going to see eye to eye with the, uh, the right? professor no that way. taught no that way. at the academy.
3: <laughs> but McHugh made it real simple in the, in the beginning. He said, look, my job is to teach you. And if you're not learning, it's my fault. So tell me what it is that you're not getting, and I'll figure out another way to do it. And I'll come in after hours. I'll do whatever you need.
2: Wow, that's great.
3: Very seldom did anybody need stupid studies because he just said, look, we, let's get it right up front. I, my job is to teach you. You're smart and you can learn this stuff or you wouldn't be here. So let me help you grasp whatever it is I'm teaching. That, that's I my job. love teachers with that attitude. And he, right. was, he was awesome. awesome. Everybody loved Jim McHugh.
2: Okay. How long does test pilot school take?
3: It's a year. And then you graduate and you go... And you can go anywhere from there you can go most most of us stayed at pax river but you can go out to edwards you can go overseas you can some people went to black programs so they went to places like tonopah or nellis or whatever's close to nellis area 51 and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but but that's you just kind of go from there to to places
2: and so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to lead you down this path just real quick um, for the uh, listeners that aren't familiar. So test pilots just don't always test new aircraft. Sometimes you test new weapon systems and software, things like that, correct?
3: You perfectly led me down the path because I am not a – I was an engineering test pilot. I was not an experimental test pilot. So the two okay. big categories are experimental test pilots. The Air Force is getting ready to fly the B-21. And I read an article just the other day where they're picking contractor and Air Force test pilots to put in the B-21 program because they're going to be the experimental test pilots. They'll they'll be flying a brand new airplane that nobody's ever flown before. Um, you know, when we flew the Harrier, we had a couple of guys that were put into the experimental test pilot program with, uh, with the Harrier and were put into experimental test pilot program with the F-18. And we we, we always have at least one. Guy who goes in there, but the vast majority of us are engineering test pilots. My job, since you mentioned it, I was an ordnance test pilot, and so I flew all known airplanes. We weren't worried about the flight dynamics; we were worried about the performance of a bomb coming off the airplane or a rocket. We wanted to make sure the bomb wasn't going to impact the airplane when it came off. So we were looking at separation, and we went through very progressive, um, you know, steps of altitude and airspeed increases to clear for you all remember the the weapons charts and all that stuff oh
2: sure yeah yeah
3: So we we built those those tables uh, I,
2: I was a weapons and tactics officer for the squadron and so I was real familiar with yeah the, you knew how to the use the tables way. unlike
3: most other people <laughs> yeah. in <the> yeah. <laughs> who said they you made know? good
0: coasters for your coffee cup you know <laughs> they do yeah, yeah.
3: said okay so, well how many mills do I put in the in gun site <laughs> right
0: exactly
2: I have a vague uh, uh, these triggered a memory I remember um I had a, a videotape of, there, it, was a we, it was a weapons test, Yeah, and uh, it, was a, it was a big bomb, probably a Mark 83 or 84. Was it coming
3: that off
2: was, of a TA-7? Was, no, it was coming off of an F-18, and there was an A-4, an OA-4, like flying chase, and there was another airplane filming this, and the bomb came off and did some crazy on took the wing off the A-4. Yep. do you do you, uh, have you ever seen I that or were I, you involved've in seen
3: that? that one but I but I have actually seen others we we were flying a weapons test and it was a separation test trying to evaluate the tables that we had flown in Vietnam because there were we had had a couple of airplanes we had lost and we suspected it was where the bomb had recontacted the airplane and and we saw a yeah. drop one day they they were training mark 82s off 500 pounders and, and they were just you know concrete Shapes,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, silly bombs.
3: But the guys started separating, and all of a sudden, the first two that came off got caught in the airflow under the wing and f- turned sideways, and then boom, 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 Ooh. just beat their way down the fuselage of the A7 until they oh. cleared the back of it. So, that you know, you you got to see all kinds <laughs> of interesting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually had a, I was carrying a, um, a, a, just a dummy, um, uh, uh, shucks, um. It's one of these cruise missiles, and uh, and I I was going out, and all I w- my flight was just captive carry to see how many G's you could put on the airplane, and how could it, how much could it stand. And I I did a turn, and all of a sudden I heard this, whoop, and the front lug had broken.
0: Oof. And
3: all of a sudden I had this big long shape. It was a like a tomahawk, mm-hmm. and I had this big long shape now dangling down in front of my wing held only by the rear lug. And How
2: fast were you, were you getting uh, just well, speed going, or delivery speed?
3: About 500 knots or so at the time. And uh, yeah. so, you know, we slowed down, got a wingman and everything. They looked, they said, you're in bad shape. We don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> so we said, we probably ought to jettison it. We got all the experts on the, you know, on the radio and uh, all the ordnance experts. And they said, whatever you do, do not jettison because you'll probably take your wing off if you try that, you know, to do what you talked uh-huh. about. The this, this shape yeah. now hanging down, the wings here and the shape is hanging down like this. So they said, uh-huh. if, if you try to jettison, it, it's probably gonna come loose and come right up and take your wing off. Right. So they said, wow. what we're gonna do is we're gonna de-rig all the gear on the runway. And we want you to come in and we want you to make this really flared landing. I mean, as slow <laughs> as you can go. <laughs> And flare and then gradually let the nose down and we'll pray that it doesn't hit any crack in the runway and and things will end right. And sure enough, they did. I brought it back and came to an end. It it never even hit the runway. But, you know, it was the rear lug was pretty tight. And so it was hanging there and ordinance came out and took it loose and all that kind of stuff. But I've had a lot of different things happen. I had a, a, a snake eye when I was flying a hornet out at Miramar. Okay. And flying for the, the uh, Black Knights, the 314. And yeah. we were out at 29 Palms doing a you know, close air support and dropped my first bomb. And all of a sudden, uh, airplane just, you know, yawed, really yawed around. And I went, holy shit, something's not right. right. I said, hey, call my wingman, said, hey, can you take a look and see what's going on here? And he said, oh, buddy, I got bad news for you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the first bomb <laughs> when the the uh the snake eye fin opened prematurely and and cut the retaining uh strap on the bomb next to it so you're carrying a snake eye open on that wing and that's why you're yawning so and you ever seen a snake eye fin open the size of it it's, it's huge isn't it Massive. Oh, so yeah,
0: only
2: on, so, only so
3: I, on video. I'm flying around with a snake I opened under my waist. It's
2: this always happened behind me. So, you oh, know?
3: That's right. And so that time I was really lucky. I, they didn't want me to go anywhere where humans were. So they were trying to figure out where to go. And, and in the meantime, the, the flight controller from LA Center said, hey, would it help if I gave you a tanker? I said, man, if you can do that, because we don't know how long it's going to take them to decide what I need to do. And uh, the the final decision was to send me into North Island because North Island was sufficiently, you know, out of the way of other stuff. And they did the same thing, de-rig all the gear on the runway. The tanker took me uh, to San Diego and dropped me off. And I did a straight in to North Island, you know, and uh, landed and rolled out. and They came out and took this dog on Five hundred pound bomb with with this wing, these wings on it, and everything. But I mean, you you could wow. see the fuel gauge going down.
2: <laughs> oh, sure, <laughs> barn doors worth of drag hanging back there.
3: Yeah. So there I was.
2: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. <Exactly. laughs>
2: oh, okay. So that's two. That's two ordinance things. What What else? Uh, oh, my gosh. I live a charmed life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did did you ever have you ever had your hand on the ejection handle?
1: Anthem.
3: Never. Uh, okay. I, I'm not flying anymore, but I'm going to knock on wood anyway, because I, I am <laughs> <Right>? having,
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, I having these,
3: uh, you know, you these bits of angst wanting to go fly again. So I'm knocking on wood here.
2: <laughs> oh, my. Holy cow. That's awesome. <laughs> how long did you do that? Uh, how long were you an engineering test pilot? How many? Uh,
3: I was years? only there for two years. And then I got selected for the astronaut program. That that was okay. I met Ron McNair while I was a test pilot. And and my time there was cut short because I, I was foolish enough to apply for the program and interview, and they were foolish enough to select me. So uh wow. so <laughs> I I was in the class of 78 and and uh spent two years at Pax River and then became a member of the class of 80 and down in Houston in the astronaut office. The of second 80. group selected yeah. for the space
0: shuttle. Wow. So you got to go four times, but they didn't just go, okay, uh, you were a test pilot. Here you go. Hop on yeah, that I baby there it. and take her for a <laughs> spin. How long is that training program? And what would most people find surprising about astronaut training? And you, and you were an active duty Marine Corps
2: while you were in, in NASA. Astronaut All the
3: way through. Training. I spent 14 okay. years in the middle of my career uh, getting promoted with my contemporaries because we got fitness reports and everything else. Okay, We have had people not not be promoted. It doesn't happen very often, but I got promoted along with my contemporaries. I went there as a, as a major Lieutenant Colonel Selectee, and it took a couple of years, you know, to pin on my, to pin on my, my, my Lieutenant Colonel stars, uh, oak leaves, but, or whatever leaves they are. <laughs> but there was a couple of Air Force guys and we were wondering who was going to take the longest to be promoted because promotion was really <laughs> slow back then. But it, we went through a two year candidacy.
2: Okay. okay, two year.
3: And what people would be surprised would be to find out how basic the training is from an academic standpoint because you have people from all backgrounds. Okay. Some not pilots. Some have never been in an airplane. And so everybody does everything together because they're trying to build this class camaraderie and stuff. So everybody takes fundamental aerodynamics, meteorology, oceanography, uh, geology. And that was the fun part because they take you out to the Grand Canyon for a week and put you in a in an SUV with a geologist from the University of Texas and a case of beer. And well,
0: that's pretty he, awesome. He says,
3: I'm driving, you drink and listen. All right. And, and we went all over the Grand Canyon and everything. So it's fundamental.
0: That's it, Fig. We're astronauts.
3: Hey, let me tell you, it is fundamental education to bring everybody up to the same level. Now, today I would not be an astronaut. I, I just came back from my reunion. And listening to these young astronauts today, uh, they go through a two year candidacy like we did. We had reduced it to a year, but it has now become so complex that it takes them two years because, I mean, they're going through high level academics. They go through the fundamental stuff. They all get sent. The non-pilots or non-aviators get sent to Pensacola and go through the T-6 curriculum up through the safe for solo flight. They don't fly a solo but okay. they go up through the safe for solo. So it's, they've gone back to the way they used to do it in the Apollo days where everybody was sent through flight school. They were all sent through air force flight school, got their wings, uh, you know, their air force wings or whatever, or mm-hmm. equivalent. And so they all flew the T-38 from the front seat. These guys, they can fly the T-38, but, but they're not rated pilots, but they've got the the flight training and everything. Okay. Today.
2: Okay. So just so I, I'm straight on this, um, Everybody that was in your class, were they all aviators or th- did that class include just scientists that wanted to be astronauts that weren't going to be? Uh...
3: There were 21 of us in my class, 19 Americans and two Europeans. So we had the t- first two European astronauts to become members of NASA's Astronaut Corps. And okay. um, and they, they were still ESA astronauts. And of the 19 Americans, half of us were pilots or or NFOs, and the other half were civilians. So we had three MDs, medical doctors. Most were engineers and a handful, a couple of them were scientists. I mean, pure scientists, you know, like astronomers, astrophysicists, you name it. And almost all of them had been on an airplane, but it had been where they went off and paid for, you know, private pilots rating and stuff because they thought it was going to help them become an astronaut. Okay, gotcha,
0: okay. So some big brains in there, it sounds like. Uh,
3: that's why I yeah. thought I would never be selected. And, and I, <laughs> when I went down for my for my interview, it was it's a week-long process. And we all arrived about half. You, they select 20, 200 finalists and divide you into groups of 20, and you go down for a week at a time. This is the way it used to be. And uh, so we all arrived at a little Clear Lake City Airport, a uh, little puddle jumping airport, and we're waiting for the bus to come, all 20 of us. And uh, the test pilots there being like test pilots with big watches said, Hey, why don't we introduce ourselves? And it was a chance for all of us to brag about who we were yeah. and uh, stick our chicks, chest out and sure. so we went around. And the last person to introduce himself was a guy who became my lifelong friend, a guy named S- Franklin Chang Diaz, Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz. Franklin was born in San Jose, Costa Rica, uh, came to America to be an astronaut. That's what he told his dad. I got to go to the United States to become an astronaut. Wow almost flunked out of the University of Connecticut because he didn't speak English, taught himself English, went on to graduate with honors, went to MIT, earned a PhD in plasma physics. And today he's he is the the, the founder of a rocket called VASIMR. Just keep that in your mind because VASIMR. one of these days VASIMR is going to be flying people to the stars. It's, it's incredible. So we're going around and everybody else bragging about what kind of fighter pilot they were and attack pilot. And Franklin very sheepishly raised his head and he said, my name is Franklin Chang-Diaz. I am a plasma physicist. And I paused for a moment. And I looked, I said, Franklin, you work with blood? And Franklin's head went down. And I think, I think in his mind, he said, you got to be shitting me. Right. I did an interview for astronaut office. This guy thinks that plasma, the only plasma is blood. I'm working with high energy stuff. And he asked me if I worked with blood, but we later became very good friends and all that stuff. So that's
0: funny. Well, I I would have asked the same question. What is, you know, uh,
3: he went on halfway through our candidacy. He actually went on the um, David Letterman show before he went. I said, Franklin, okay, let me give you a couple of hints here. David Letterman is a comedian. Okay, so he's going to humor you. And uh, but don't don't get sucked in. I said David Letterman is not interested in plasma physics or anything. And so we all gather around the television. And the last person he introduces, he says, and and, okay, it's now time for our very special guest. This is an amazing individual who is a NASA astronaut. And I'm gonna bring him out now. Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz. Come on out, Franklin. And Franklin came out, he's smiling, big smile on his face. He sat down. The first question David Letterman said, say uh Dr. Chang Diaz, it says here you're a plasma physicist. And Franklin said, Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you work with blood? And oh, geez. Franklin's, <laughs> Franklin's eyes kind of went down, but then he he perked up because he remembered that Charlie Bolton told me this guy <laughs> was a comedian. So, so that's where he was. I'm not sure I stood any higher in his in his eyes after going through the David Letterman show, though.
0: <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's, That's awesome. A great story.
2: So I got, I got uh, like 17 questions <laughs> at least and, and, and um, rapid yeah, fire. And,
3: I'll try well, to, well, no, I'll cause try I, if I start asking responses. them all,
2: we're, we're going to be here for a week, uh, Panther, and I can't do that to you. So two years, uh, in the candidacy, uh, at NASA, and then, and then they, the, is there a, omni, uh, omni Vortec you, you get, bl- you get, uh, anointed, uh, there, there is an
3: omni, omni vortex You have your, you're winging, so to speak. They give you your little silver astronaut pin, which says okay. you're now a full-fledged astronaut. Not flown—that's the difference. The silver is a uh, is you're still an astronaut candidate in most people's eyes. In my eyes, definitely. And once you fly, <laughs> you get a gold astronaut pin that's that's that flies with you in space. So so we got our little silver pins, and you go off and and you're assigned to some of the experienced astronauts in the office, and that's your. On-the-job training. You know, you're an apprentice to an experienced astronaut. Okay. Until you get assigned to a crew.
2: And so how long from the from the time you got your astronaut pin, you graduated at the candidacy yeah. course until you strap on a shuttle?
3: I was actually assigned to my crew about two years after finishing the candidacy, but I didn't fly until four years after. I've, you know, we graduated, so to speak, in 82. And I flew my first flight in January of 86. We had been scheduled to fly any number of times going back into, say, the mid-1985. And then finally, we even changed flights one time. And then okay. uh, we were scheduled to fly in December of 85, went to the pad, aborted at um, T-minus at 14, 14 seconds. So we got down to 14 seconds. and Oh, my gosh. And they said, OK, stop, stop, stop. Uh, they thought there was something wrong with the hydraulic power unit that drove the nozzles on the right hand solid rocket booster. Turned out okay. not to be a problem because everything's computers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's all software. You were talking about that before, and it turned out to be a piece of debris on one of the little computer cards in that that solid rocket booster booster, but they didn't know that until they removed the computer and the hydraulic power unit from the AS end of the rocket. We went home for Christmas and then came back and had three more launch attempts. And then finally on the fifth attempt laying there thinking we weren't going to go, we went, <laughs> but we were really relaxed. <laughs> right. It's never going
0: to happen. Been here, done this. <laughs> now that time frame was very close to Challenger, right? Was, wasn't we, Challenger we January
3: launched, 86? We launched immediately prior to Challenger. So we, okay. both vehicles were on the pad at the same time. In fact, the, our launch was the day after they went through their practice launch. So they were down at the Cape and they went through, uh, you know, they got into the vehicle and went through the practice launch. Like everybody does about a couple of weeks before your schedule to fly, you go all the way through the countdown and do everything except light the engines. And so they came down. um, They were all very good friends. And um, so they came back. uh, We landed on the 18th of January and, they finally launched on the 28th, and that was the day we lost Challenger. Right.
0: Well, I know exactly where I was that day. So do I. Everybody. I was driving through the back gate at Cherry Point, and I was a Hawk missile uh, platoon commander at uh, Cherry Point on my way back from Chow. Horrible. Okay. So,
2: okay. I, I want to talk about something positive. Happy stuff. Yeah. Uh,
0: now, this is this. Uh oh. Yeah. Now maybe, now maybe he is gone. So, yeah. So I I don't know. I think he was going to ask what's, what's that like when it does kick you in the pants? Because, you know, I I don't know, a triple seven puts out 90,000 pounds of thrust aside. I I think the shuttle puts out in somewhere in the order of millions of pounds of thrust. So I could be wrong.
3: Yeah. You got to remember though, how much, how much mass it's pushing. Okay. So your engines on your 777 or your 737, relatively speaking, the proportion of mass that they're pushing is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of what my million and a half pounds of thrust. Well, actually, uh, it's more than that because you get a million pounds out of each solid rocket booster. Okay. So you got about 4 million pounds of thrust pushing a 7 million pound vehicle into space. And, and the the old force, the old F equals MA equation says it's about a G and a half. So really? okay. when you release the brakes on a seven on a triple seven, and we all you know slide back in our seats, that's roughly what we feel when we lift off in the shuttle. Now, what you don't get in a triple seven is it shaking like it's about to come apart. Uh, when the solid, <laughs> You're not
0: supposed to anyway.
3: <laughs> you get this go. Boom, you hear and feel the solids ignite. The three main engines, it's just a poof,
1: poof, poof.
3: And it okay. causes the vehicle to shake a little bit. And it it actually, because it's held by four bolts on each of the two solid rocket boosters. So you got these mm. eight bolts about this big around that are holding up this 4 million pound stack. So about
0: stack six inches across stack. in diameter. Exactly. Okay.
3: And, and so... It, it does what we call the twang. It, it tilts over because the engines aren't pointed straight up and down. They're okay. pointed at an angle and it tips over until they get caught by the bolts and then it springs back. So that's the twang. And okay. everything's time to let the computers check out all the systems in the shuttle. If everything's good by the time it gets back to straight up, signals go to the two igniters on each solid rocket booster and go, you get this explosion that you hear and feel I mean, it just literally, it just shakes the living crap out of you. And it, and it vibrates as you lift off from the pad and it lasts. I mean, that vibration lasts as long as the two solids are on there. So for the first two and a half minutes, I mean, the vehicle's just shaking going uphill. And it's hauling right. ass though, because the solids have one purpose in life. And that's to get you up and out of the atmosphere. So because the atmosphere is not where you want to be with a very fragile spacecraft.
0: Yeah, lots of, lots and, of drag and everything and s- else. on the winds, there too, right?
3: changing And all that kind of stuff. If you can yeah. imagine you and your 737 getting bounced around, we're, we're doing, you're getting bounced around because you're going through airflow that's just turbulent. Mm-hmm. We're getting bounced around because we're going through constantly changing direction and force on the air as you go up.
0: Sure, so, the wind is shearing across exactly. your bat, flight you get, path you get, yeah, the instead more, of wind. The
3: wind it. shears it'll literally break the vehicle apart. So the wings, believe it or not, the wings have a good purpose on the shuttle. The wings are constantly moving. It's a fly-by-wire spacecraft, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so back in the old days, they preloaded the what they call the what they thought the wind conditions were going to be based on the weather balloons, and so it moved the wings around to offload the vehicle as it went through all these wind shears, so that the vehicle didn't break apart. Wow. Just
0: thinking of some big brains there that uh that figured out how all oh, that yeah. worked. Oh yeah. yeah. So how long is it? Uh I imagine it's not long. Uh how long does it take until you go uh supersonic on the launch?
3: Oh, you're supersonic less than a minute. So nice. you you know you clear the tower and you're supersonic at about 50 seconds or so. Uh when people I I I, I was not at the Cape when we launched SLS couple of weeks okay. ago, but, but everybody said it was unlike anything they had ever seen or experienced in their lives. Nobody, nobody knew how much thrust, you know, what kind of damage that, that amount of thrust was going to do. It it blew the doors off the elevators on the launch pad, uh, it did all kinds of stuff. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but in shuttle, you're going pretty fast and SLS is the same way. It has so much thrust for the weight of the vehicle That um, it just sprang off the launch pad. Apollo, if you remember watching Apollo launch photography, it seems like it just hovers there. And it really was. It was literally trying to burn off propellant as it went up. So it was just, it was too heavy for the thrust on the engines until it had burned off some propellant. SLS and, and spacecraft of today, they're not like that. So we just literally sprang off the pad.
0: Okay, so when I look at an airplane, vintage 1915, 1920, I go, how do they have the stones to go up in that thing? I imagine you're looking at the uh, Apollo aircraft going, how did they have the stones to go up in that thing?
3: All you got to <laughs> do is look at your watch. Right. Recognize the fact that there is more memory in your watch than they had more computing power in your yeah. Apple watch or whatever watch you have Right. That Don Glenn had going in, you know, our first orbital mission.
2: That's can you and, believe and the that? more
3: I learn the more I would learn about that? I say, you know, those guys had huge <laughs> All right. Still, oh,
0: <laughs> yeah, it is terrifying. In fact, I had uh, there was a series done um what uh I think it was called What They Saw, and I don't remember now the, the name of it. I'll try to look it up here in one of our interludes here. Repeat here, the publisher's note is. The podcast I'm referring to is known as Apollo 11, What We Saw, with host Bill Whittle. He talked about it. I I did not realize that Neil Armstrong was talking about the, I think it was like a 214 error or a 201 error. And he's trying to talk back to Houston. They lost a computer due to a buffer overrun just as it rotated. So that the lunar surface was now out of view and he's about two empire state buildings above the surface of the moon with no computer going, Hey, uh, NASA, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And the, well, and the, I think the, uh, the podcast announcer was saying, you know, this, this is about as close as you'll ever hear Neil Armstrong coming to uh, full on panic. Um,
3: exactly, Because the crew had never seen that the, in the, right. the, the funny thing is as we go back and look through the archives and everything, Um, And I think I may have seen the same thing you did, but there was a young woman in the back room who during during the training and the simulations, they had this alarm occur several times. And so she had gone through her NATOPS and she found out that that particular alarm is exactly what you said. Don't worry about it. It's just a buffer overload. It'll recover. So it's not it is not a safety of flight issue. And she tried to get people to tell the crew that in training. And all the smart men said, no, don't don't worry about it. Don't don't even worry about it. And sure enough, as Armstrong's in the final throws about to run out of gas, actually, they get this 1201 or 1202
0: or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah.
3: And the good thing was one of the guys who was on console had listened to her and he told the flight controller, flight, ignore it. They'll be okay. Everything's all right. Keep going. And so they told (laughs) Neil, keep
2: up. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So I I saw, I was on a layover in Orlando. It was an evening launch. And my hotel, uh, uh, I had a sliding glass door and a little patio on like the third floor. And I, I noticed that there was a group of people starting to gather in the parking lot facing east. It was facing east towards the Cape. And so I had the TV on the countdown and it was five, four, three, two, one launch. And I kept looking out and I didn't see anything. And then as soon as it cleared the launch pad, I looked East and there it was, I could see it in the distance. And so here's my takeaway from that. Having never seen a launch, how fast it happened. And in my mind, it was just going to go straight up and out of sight. And and what it did was it went up. And then when it got up, uh, you know, the sun lit it up. Now, I, I saw the solid rocket boosters come off with my naked eye. And then instead of it just going out of sight, it, it just, it kind of turned North and went over the horizon. Yeah. And I thought, well, that I thought it was just going to go straight up in outer space and be gone. Yeah. No, and,
3: and no, it was, I, it only goes straight up for the first two minutes. That's the, like I was saying that the purpose of the solids is to get it out of the atmosphere. It's closed loop. There's nothing you can do. It's flying itself. The wings are moving fluttering because it's, you know, it's been told what the winds are going to be. And so it's adjusting so that the vehicle doesn't get broken up. And for two minutes and some odd seconds, the solids burn and get you up out of the atmosphere. And when they separate, it gets really calm. I mean, the vehicle just stabilizes and it feels like you're in a giant car going down the smoothest freeway you've ever been on. And that's when it does start to bend over because it's It went for altitude first to get you out of the atmosphere, and then you got to get to a certain velocity to escape Earth's gravity. And so it very slowly starts to pitch over and go for altitude, I mean, for airspeed. So if if you look at the, you know, at the displays and everything, it goes up and then starts to go over, and it actually comes back down for just a little while. It's like you getting ready to do some aerobatic maneuvers and stuff. And you know, you, you kind of run out of airspeed and you want to pick your airspeed up. So you just kind of pitch over and then come back up again. That's what we okay. do. It, it kind okay. of pitches over, gains airspeed. So it starts to go down what we call down range. Down range, okay. So you'll see that it it gets farther and farther away from the launch site as the launch goes. And it's going much farther in distance than it is in altitude whereas before it was almost all altitude because it's trying to get speed and distance away from the launch pad. So that's why you can see it forever. You can actually see on a good day or a good night, especially, you can see the main engines cut off on, on a, on a Falcon nine, you know, you see, you see the first stage separation, and then you see the second stage ignite. And I think on Falcon nine, you can actually see the, the second stage go out because that's like eight and a half minutes downrange, and and with the naked eye on a good clear night, uh, yeah. you know it's it's like a star in the sky, and then all of a sudden you see the star go away. Yeah. The, uh,
0: the other thing I'll so mention, cool. I you know I watched Columbia go up uh, from three miles away. The the concussion of yep. the of the noise yep. hitting you in the chest and in the face yep. was. <laughs> it was without a doubt the most powerful thing I've ever seen in my life. And my, how oh, far
3: away did you say you were?
0: I think we were 3 miles from the launch pad.
3: Imagine being the the doors of the elevator on the launch pad. That's what happened <laughs> when SLS launched. That same acoustic energy, yeah. you know, the just the sound from the right it wasn't any I mean it's its sound is energy and it sure. just yeah. boom it just blew the doors off. <laughs> I mean it's <laughs> you
0: know that is that is wild. So, right, and right. I didn't know that either. That's, that's kind of cool. Us, that,
3: that's why they don't no. let us fly supersonic over ground.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because right, yeah. you don't there want you to go.
3: be breaking people's windows. To start stuff. breaking stuff. Right.
2: <laughs> Panther, when the when the when the solid rocket uh, boosters uh, come off, and you said um, it feels like you, you know you just you transition from kind of a uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I don't remember Pardon? exactly how you described it. Uh, but do, do you feel deceleration? Or, or is it uh, just a change in the, uh, like the flight uh, characteristics? Like, like yeah. you go from a little bit of light turbulence to smooth air.
3: You don't feel a deceleration as much as you do. It's it's like going from violent turbulence to smooth air instantly. Wow. The solids separate, and it's like you and your triple seven. Boy, you just went through the most violent. Uh, turbulence you've experienced <laughs> flying a triple seven you know you, you say holy shit what are we in yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it gets smooth all over you that's that's i mean it happens it's like boom solid separate and it just gets smooth
2: and is it smooth all the way into smooth
3: the rest of the way until about 45 seconds prior to the main engine's cutting off and it only takes you know, you only take eight and a half minutes to get to space. So the main engines burn and, and it makes no wow. difference whether you're talking about a Falcon 9 or an SLS. It's about eight and a half minutes to uh, get you out of the atmosphere, going orbital velocity and the main engines cut off. When that happens, now that's a dramatic change because the vehicle has burned off most of its fuel. So it's now gone from a, from a 7,000 pound vehicle to essentially a 200,000 pound orbiter because you've gotten rid of a million pounds of thrust and wow. a million pounds of mass with each of the solid rocket boosters. You've gotten rid of the external tank or you're getting ready to get rid of it, which had a million pounds of liquid propellant in it. And you're now just essentially this 200,000 pound booster is still being pushed by a million and a half pounds of thrust from the main engines. And we bottle <laughs> we them back as much, it's like you, Pulling back on the throttles so you can start descending, we pull back on the throttles as far as we think you can safely go on on jet en- on rocket engines, uh, so as to limit the amount of G. But we can't get it below about three Gs. But it's all through your chest, so you're accustomed to six, seven, eight, nine Gs when you pull it. But that's right. three head that's longitudinal mm-hmm. g right. we're getting uh, we're getting it right through your chest and you're not you've never experienced that before in all no study. and it's like having a couple of gorillas in your chest for <laughs> 35 seconds. so you you know you're just kind of
2: would kinda, be like a continuous out. cat shot
3: that's it yeah. and right. then when it when it when the thrust stops you just pop up against your straps and you're for all intents and purposes you're floating you know gravity is yeah. now yeah. You're still in this gravity environment, but it's overcome by the centrifugal force created by the speed of you going around the planet.
0: Now, how was, uh, I, I guess I'll refer back to uh, what's always lovingly referred to as the vomit comet, where they take you up and do yep. parabolic flight to get you used yep. to to zero G. Uh, how, how long does it take to... Uh to customize, uh, in space or, or do some people just wear the Dramamine patch the entire week or <laughs> uh,
3: most people adapt in about two days, you know, okay. m- maximum of two days. We've had a, to my knowledge, we've had a few people who just, just never fully adjusted. I mean, nobody's vomiting the whole time. right? Uh, and very few people to be quite honest, get, get, physically sick, where they, right. to the point where they're throwing up,
0: they just so feel you, a little, little green, <laughs> Feel a
3: little stomach awareness or a little lightheaded or other kinds of things. Um, everybody experiences what we call space adaptation syndrome to some, some effect. And it's because everybody you, you, it's physics. When the fluids come up in your body, I mean, your head just feels full. So mm-hmm. it's like, you, you know, you've got the worst head cold you've ever had in your life. Because all this fluids in your head, you look down here and your blood vessels oh, are yeah. in your neck and up here in your temples and you go to the bathroom and you pee for two days and you <laughs> get rid of about two liters of fluid that you don't need and everything gets back to normal, so. Okay, yeah, it's, it's, the body is amazing at adapting to
0: that it. is pretty impressive yeah. that is that is amazing hey one other quick thing i wanted to ask you about launch um so sometimes they'll scrub a launch for a launch window in fact i think it was was it titan or titus or something like that just just finally splashed down yesterday to had uh it, it was missing launch windows uh yeah. can you describe what a launch window is and why it's hard to calculate uh, and why it scrubs a mission sometimes?
3: They're they're not hard to calculate. They're okay, and, and it scrubs them. For example, if you're going to rendezvous with the International Space Station, the most efficient way to do it, and you can think about it like an airplane, is you want to catch the space station going overhead, and you want to launch right then,
2: shortest you, possible uh, distance, right?
3: The shortest possible distance. That's the closest you're going to be to it, and so you want to launch when it's right there, 250 miles away, and then you're going to use speed. To catch up with it, you're going to fly lower than it is. And, you know, orbital velocity or orbital orbital mechanics says, if I fly lower than something, I'm going faster around Earth. So you're
0: making a smaller circle than it is. Exactly.
3: And you fly out in front of it. And then gradually you can just let yourself as you get higher and higher, you slow down until you you end up rendezvousing with it, so that's okay. the way you run the rendezvous and so that's why you hear them refer to instant they have an instantaneous launch window for a mission going to the international Space Station if you're going to another planet or something like that, the launch windows get longer uh but it's always you want to launch when it's going to be the most efficient time to get to the target that you're eventually sure. going to sure. some of them had unlimited launch windows and they were they were limited only by how long they thought the, the human being could stand on, on his or her back. And that was usually we got to two and three hour launch windows and you said, okay, that's it. You know, we're not, we're not, we were on, we were on our backs for about two hours on the next to the last scrub before we launched. And it was because they, we were in the middle of a thunderstorm that just wouldn't go away and uh, lightning <laughs> and thunder and everything. And after about two hours, they said, Hey guys, you know, this is a we're losing done. proposition here. This storm is not going away. And so let's just get these guys out of the vehicle before lightning hits it and, and blows them up.
2: So here's a, uh, uh, I don't know if you can put a, an exact quantity to this, but uh, I, I think you can get us close. So you fly a space shuttle mission mm-hmm. and that mission lasts. Uh, w- what's, what's an average space shuttle mission last?
3: Toward the end, we were flying 13, 14, 15 days. Okay. We were going to the International Space Station and so you could fly that extra time because once you docked a station, all your consumables, you know, your oxygen, your water, all that stuff was coming from the station. So you weren't having to produce it. A, a normal shuttle by itself could fly eight, nine, 10 days.
2: So let's, let's just keep the math simple. It's a 10-day yeah. shuttle mission. Yeah. How many days, weeks, months, years did you train before that 10-day mission?
3: Uh, back in those days, it was usually about two years. Wow! So, uh, you know, you were assigned to a crew and that began your training sequence. And the first, um, first oh nine to nine months to a year was mostly standalone training. And so, it's like you and your crew in the simulator doing everything, you know, going through all the emergencies and all that stuff without the help of a ground team, and then. As you got into that second year, you started getting the what we call integrated simulations where you you brought in the ground team. And then the training was really focused on the ground control team, the flight control team in mission control. And so you had been training. So you were very familiar with the with the failure modes and everything, but you were taught, OK, don't show anybody how smart you are. Just wait. <laughs> the ground will tell you when to do something. Don't get ahead of them don't go grab the malfunction book and start working stuff tell the ground that i got a failure you're not tr- tr- and, they, and they would tell you got got a here's a news break you're not telling them anything they haven't known for <laughs> days. Right. they can look at oscilloscopes an oscilloscope <laughs> and graphs and they have known that you were going to get this alarm like 2 days ago and sometimes okay. they'll tell you you know we want you to go to we want you to go to system b because you got a slight leak in this and we don't want, we don't want to trip an alarm. So go to, you know, to go to hydraulic system two or whatever it is, okay. but uh, every once in a while they missed it and you got an alarm and, and they said, okay, don't do anything.
2: So, so you're training for two years yeah. for a 10 day mission. And, and while you're doing this training, you are keeping proficient flying. You got NASA T-38. So how often do you fly and, uh, and, and what's that take to stay proficient?
3: It depends on whether you like I was in the squadron. I was always a flight time hog. So I tried to fly two or three times a week.
0: Right on. OK, uh, you know, I tried Here's to you.
3: fly as often as I could. And uh, even if it meant taking somebody somewhere, I, I was a taxi driver. So, you know, you had a mission specialist, a guy or girl who needed to go to train somewhere, but they couldn't fly themselves because they weren't rated pilots. So, you know, yeah. they'd say, hey, you you need some time. I'd say, I sure do. Can you take me out to Denver or can you take me out to San Francisco?
2: Yes, I can. You
3: look at your schedule, say, Yes, I can. <laughs> there you uh, go. I'll
2: make it
0: happen. You know, so yeah. Oh, that's great. I, that's
3: I generally great. flew three times a week or something like that. Nice. And then you could, if you wanted to, we did cross countries the same way we did in the squadron. You know, you could they'd let you take a T thirty-eight and and go away. You want to go home to visit family or something like that. You just yeah. sign the airplane out and go off on a cross country, make sure you went into military bases or places that had the stuff you needed and the security and
2: you sure. were sure nice. and then so you would just go fly get your approaches and landings and, and whatever you needed to do to stay current maybe go do a little acro if you exactly felt like that right yeah. oh that's awesome yeah okay nice
3: you weren't supposed to but every once in a while guys would sneak off and go to somewhere like yuma and and they had a, a friend who was you know, at uh, Top Gun or something else, and they yeah. were looking for a, a dissimilar air, airplane. Yeah. So you go out and
2: get a little one v one,
3: little one v one, and then <laughs> nice. hope, hope you didn't get put on report. <laughs> Very that was, cool. That was a no no back then.
0: Whoops. So you go? Yeah. Well, I guess they didn't want to lose
3: <laughs> okay, an. That's ACM, a lot of losing an astronaut of, in an
0: ECM flight. That's a lot of money down the toilet.
3: Because that's a uh, lot of
2: training. There's a lot of training that just.
0: Yeah. Ended up in the uh, in Star Wars Canyon. So well they
3: speak, learned a lot of these lessons with the Mercury Gemini Apollo guys.
0: Those guys weren't wild men or anything, you know.
3: Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of them, you know, they were they were wild and crazy guys. They they lost a couple of airplanes, guys trying to one leg it back from LA oh or gosh. trying to one leg it somewhere running out of gas and having to jump out of the airplane just short of the little
0: go read Chuck Yeager's book or the right stuff and see some, those guys were wild men and it was incredible. Yeah. So back, back to yeah. space briefly. So the, your first mission was a comm satellite, I read. And your second one was the, was the Hubble telescope. What uh, can you tell us it uh, goes into that, yep. that would surprise somebody that doesn't understand what it, what it takes to get a shuttle in the air and get, get it launched into orbit, I guess.
3: I think, you know, when you, you yeah. You talk about a mission like Hubble, mm-hmm. Hubble was one of these, you know, we didn't have a, when you talk about launch window, so difference between Hubble and everything else, Hubble was going to its own orbit. So the launch okay. window for Hubble was generally based on time on the back for the, for the crew. There, there was no, you know, nothing constraining our launch window, but, but what was constraining was once right. you got Hubble right. out of yeah. the payload bay, once you, you know, we use the mechanical arm, the robotic arm, Canada arm, we would used that to lift it out of the payload bay and then put it above the the shuttle, put its solar rays out because it needed its power. it needed it it was on it was on okay, orbiter sure. power until we pulled the the umbilical, the electrical plug, and then pulled it out. So we had I want to say we had six hours of battery time uh, that it could stand on its own and we put it up. Um, unfortunately for us, we had trouble. Lifting Hubble out of the payload bay, the mechanical arm—you <laughs> know—geniuses up at MIT and Draper Labs and everybody else had designed the control laws for the mechanical arm, such that uh, you know, right. in in microgravity,
0: so you got a telescope doesn't win anything, movement. but it's
3: still a twenty-five thousand-pound mass. But, but control law exactly. So the control laws were such that when we pulled back on this on this translational hand controller it was supposed to just lift the telescope straight out there were some things that were not exactly correct in the control law so when steve holly pulled back on the stick it not only started coming oh. out but it started twisting and yawing and we went whoa because there wasn't a lot of room there was, i could stick my fist between the side of hubble and the Langeron, the side of the inside mm-hmm. of the payload bay so so we didn't have a lot of play. We really needed to lift straight out. So Steve had to do something called downgrade or down mode into single joint operations where he individually selected one joint on the arm to move at a time. So what was supposed to take him about 15 Ooh, minutes boy. to lift Hubble out took us a little bit more than an hour because he was doing it one joint at a time, you know, and tweaking it out. We got it out and put it up. First solar array went out, oh, no. no problem. Second solar array went out about 16 inches and stopped. And so we spent the rest of the day uh, trying to figure out how to get the solar array deployed, because if it didn't work, Hubble was going to die. That's how critical it was. It was getting some energy from the partially deployed and the fully deployed solar array, but not enough to keep it alive. So time became our enemy. And, um, they finally figured out that it was, you talk about software again, there was mm-hmm. a little software module, a little piece of, uh, you know, logic in the, in the telescope that was called a tension monitoring module. Its purpose was to keep, a, keep the solar rays from ripping themselves okay. if it, something physically hindered its rolling out. And the tension monitoring module actually malfunctioned because uh, it, it right sensed that there was some tension and there wasn't any there. So after several hours, a young engineer at Goddard said, hey, I, I don't think we got a real problem. I think it's the software. So if you'll allow me to know out the right. software, no. take it out. <laughs> and the flight controller, when you want to do what? He said, no, if you're wrong, what's going to happen? He said, well, if but I'm if wrong, we don't we do, we do anything, we're going to lose you know, the, the telescope. Because solar yeah. array is just going to rip itself to shreds. Yeah. But if we don't do anything, we're gonna we're gonna lose the telescope. So he said, "But I'm confident I'm right." And the funny thing was, Bruce McCandless, who is now passed, but Bruce knew everything there was to know about the, the space telescope. He was on my crew, and you know him. He's a naval aviator, um, you know, Vietnam era guy. But his um, he oh, was I saw the first a picture of that yesterday. Satellites. Yeah, so untethered the spacewalk, the very first time. Oh, that's that's the iconic picture. That's Bruce McCandless. And um, and so he said, when when the solar array didn't go out, he said, "Ah, oh, I think it's the tension monitoring module." And the rest of us on the crew looked at Bruce. And we said, "Right? What the f is a tension monitoring module?"
0: Well, if you were a plasma physicist, you'd know, but
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he said it's just a software module we put in to you know to keep the solar array from destroying itself, and it. There's nothing wrong. He said they just should know about the tension monitoring models module. Several hours later on the ground, they came and said, oh, we think it's the tension monitoring module. The rest of us looked at Bruce and went, you asshole. How, how'd you know that?
0: <laughs> yeah. How did you know that you bastard?
3: <laughs>
0: so I think the standard civilian question would be, so why didn't you want to just put on space shoot and space shoot space suit and walk out there and fix it. How much harder is a spacesuit, spacewalk than it than people think? The
3: obvious question. Uh, very hard. And But, however, because we weren't confident we were going to get it solved by any other means, several hours earlier in the day, Bruce was a smart cookie. So Bruce and Kathy Sullivan were our EVA crew members, our spacewalk crew members. Both of them were veteran spacewalkers. And early in the morning, they decided, you know, just in case something comes up, we want to start getting dressed. I mean, you know, there's okay. everything's going to work right. But just in case, so the first thing they had to put on was this a, a pair of long johns. We call them, they look like long johns, but, but it was a liquid, cool, ventilating garment, LCVG, and it was a set of long johns with hundreds of feet of rubber tubing running through it that water flowed through to keep them heated and cooled as necessary once they were out in space. So they were in their LCVGs before we even started the the deploy operation. So they didn't have to worry about that. And as we went along, the ground control team said, hey, you know, we're not confident we're going to get this solved. Why don't you start getting Bruce and Kathy suited up? So my job was to suit them up. So I left the flight deck, went down and went in the airlock with them, got them suited up. We started depressurizing the airlock and we got them down. We were probably minutes away from having them at vacuum Mm -hmm. being able to open the hatch and go out and manually roll out the solar array. We had actually practiced that. We had flown over to Bristol, England, where British aerospace had built designed and built the solar arrays. And all of us had had a chance to pull out this little crank and manually crank out the solar arrays. So we were confident we could do that. We didn't want to do it because it meant once you manually cranked it out, it meant that the, the automatic control of the solar arrays was now gone forever. Oh, so it meant okay. that, you know, future kinds of things you might want to do, you, you're you going to have to always go out and do a spacewalk. And you didn't want to yeah. have to do that.
1: Go ahead, like You got to go to release the perlers and a go to transfer Hubble to internal power on time. Roger that. Understand. Go for perler release and go for transfer to internal power on time. That's firm. And uh, status for you, Houston, uh, Charlie's downstairs in the process of getting uh, Bruce and Kathy buttons up in the suits. Aviating copies, and we're watching the fans come on. Houston Discovery, it looks like motion stopped with uh, just about one panel showing. And we see that too, Lauren. The DCE is off.
0: This is Mission Control Houston flight controllers here in uh, Mission Control Center discussing an impending deadline. Uh, Within about 13 minutes we will reach a point of having concluded the pre-breathe and in order to provide enough rapid response time to support an EVA we would need to begin depressurizing the airlock in about uh, 12 to 13 minutes from now.
1: The other thing I need an answer to is if i can go ahead and commit the eva with a thought of going out and cranking it out if the, if whatever they're about to do fails that they want us to just press on to back them up we need to get on with it okay flight i'll come back with the answer i need answers now flight fail go ahead yeah i don't feel comfortable waiting until after i don't either that's why i want the answers now yeah 6:20 is the my drop dead time from adding up all the times OK, I'm going to have them press on. All right, Capcom, tell the crew we want them to press on into EVA, and plane. we'll stop them whenever we have to. just so quickly, we got four minutes on this pass. Discovery, Houston. Discovery, okay, go ahead. OK, with the panels that you've got out there right now, it's not satisfactory to stay overnight. So we're going to have to move out on the EVA. Discovery Houston. Discovery, go ahead. We think there may be some problem with the tension monitoring software. We've got the DCE back on. We're going to disable the tension monitoring and resend the proc to deploy the minus SDM. Okay. Okay, Houston, we see motion. We've got the image down here, Lauren. At Houston, we think it's stopped? It's fully deployed. The micro-switch is confirming. Okay. And for Bruce and Kathy, we'd like you to stop the airlock depress at 5, please.
0: Another quick question about that spacewalk and vacuum. Does, does that air vent overboard? Or? It does.
3: It just, it just vents overboard. And then okay. what you do is when they come back into the airlock and close the hatch, you take air from inside the cabin. What you're doing is you're pumping more air out of the oxygen and nitrogen and hydrogen yeah. tanks out in the payload bay. You're pumping air into the cabin, and it's pumping it out into the airlock. So, that you bring the airlock up to normal atmospheric pressure, 14.7, just like we have down here, yep. and, and everything's back to normal again. And they can, Okay. They
2: can, uh, how long of a process is that,
3: paying? Um About an hour to repress. Um, wow. it, it doesn't take very much time to decompress, to, to depressurize, as you might add. They just open a little mm. hole and it, I mean, it goes out pretty quick. It goes quick. out very quickly. Yeah. yeah. And they, wow. you know, back so- in the old days, they had to pre breathe. So, they'd wake up in the morning. And they'd put on a mask and they pre-breathe 100 percent oxygen because you, you want to get all the nitrogen and other kinds of stuff out of your blood. You know, so you if don't get you're the a bins. scuba diver, you don't right. want to get, right. you don't want to get the bins. And you get the bins, mm. think of scuba inverted. So you know yeah. you're at pressure inside the shuttle. So that's like being at the bottom of the ocean. And you're gonna go back right. up to the surface when they go out in space. That's their surface. So they're going from yes. pressurized to no pressure. In scuba diving, we go from extra high pressure to normal atmospheric pressure. So, and we yeah. just didn't want them to have the bends like scuba divers get if they come up too quickly or do too other quickly. Sure.
0: Like I didn't even think about it. Yeah. 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 That makes yeah. perfect sense. So, okay. Well, sadly, we're getting close to the end of the time. Panther, will you please come back with us?
3: I, if you let me come back, I'm happy. Oh, I got some. I no there let, I was there's no to let to it. it. I, I didn't tell you my favorite E4 story where I thought I was going to kill myself.
0: Let's close with that then. Yes.
3: Well, I close with that because I've told you about. I, I am have a 50. person who loves to admit my mistakes because I don't want other people. It's like my son. He's a whistle in F18s before he retired, and he got mad with me one day and he came in and yelled. He said, "You know, it's not fair." I said, "Chay." What's not fair? He said, we can't do any of the stuff you did. I said, that's because we were stupid. And uh, (laughs) we learned in blood, you know, not to do the stuff that we don't let you do. So there I was in a TA-4 at Pax River. I was a test pilot. I was with, and I'm trying to remember Benji's last name, but Benji was an A-4 guy. And uh, he was in the back seat. I was in the front. So I was flying the hop. And um, we had some spare time. So we started doing aerobatics. And I'm in the middle of a loop. And you all will remember because you flew F- A4s and, you know, we had the, yes. we had the slats.
2: Yeah, your dynamic the slats. The
3: thing you want to do is when you're at the top of the loop, relax the stick because the slats might flop out on you and then it's a bad day. And so I'm at the top <laughs> of the loop and I don't know what I did, but I relaxed the, the, you know, the force on the stick just a little bit. And all of a sudden, I mean, we just flipped and we With got a in the, the spin. <laughs> And and a I think we're gonna die. And <laughs> yeah. you know, the, A4 the A4 did not have not a good built source. for spin recovery. No. So no. and and what happened was I immediately, because I hadn't really strapped in as tight as I should have, I immediately was pushed up against the canopy. And I mean, oh, I it took everything I could to reach down and I could just get my hand on the top of the stick. You know, to try to just find neutral position with the stick. And I'm yelling at Benji in the back and he's going, I can't reach the stick. I can't reach the stick. And I said, well, we're going to die. We're going to die. And (laughs) and I finally managed to push myself down low enough that, you know, I got the stick and and kind of felt around and got it to someplace neutral. And all of a sudden the airplane just kind of slowed itself and stopped. And we were able to roll inverted. and And we went immediately to the bar and uh celebrated having cheated death one more time so there i was you know somebody get ready to go home and tell my wife we're sorry to inform you but your husband was an idiot and uh and put himself into an inverted spin and (laughs) (laughs) before
2: do you recall what altitude it was that we were really up there
3: otherwise we'd have never made it because i think i want. oh
2: thank goodness i want to
3: say we recovered about six thousand feet we were Oh, my way past ejecting. So we knew we were going to die.
2: Oh, oh, yeah. Wow. Well, well, I was young.
3: Back then, I was young and foolish. I was a you got to remember. I was a I was a captain.
0: Sure. I was I was I was bulletproof. I mean,
3: there was nothing that I couldn't do.
0: No, can't kill me. Jeez. Thank you. That is awesome. That
2: I have 15 start. questions that uh, you're going to have to come back oh, to okay. answer Absolutely. because I've got a long list. I've, there's a, I, I want to ask what the future of space flight yeah, is. So I want to hear that. all about
0: yeah, we, being uh, last, last question. And I think this is a quick answer. What was the best job you ever did?
3: Oh, best job I ever did was just squadron pilot. Uh, uh, but I don't know, maintenance control officer okay. in 533 in, in Thailand, Vietnam, because I work night shift with a crew and I I mean, I got to see Marines at their best. I I I love that. That was, that was better than anything else I ever did. I was a young first lieutenant, and um, I I remember being under an A six one night trying to help. But I, I asked this young corporal, lance corporal, to uh, to show me how you remove. He was going out to remove an APU, and I said, show me how you do that. And then can I try? And and he gave me a wrench, and all of a sudden I I felt I could feel the presence of the maintenance chief. This master gun, uh, and he right. said, "Lieutenant, get your ass out from under my airplane." <laughs>
1: what
2: you and and, and my as, air, a, air.
3: as a lieutenant would do when the master gun said, "Get your ass out from
0: under," Master Guns. All right, top.
3: Remember, you're a pilot. He's <laughs> the maintenance guy. He's not going to try to do your job. Don't you try to do his. <laughs>
0: There you go. He's
2: there not going to be pushing buttons in your cockpit. <laughs> Get the hell out from underneath his. Get weapon.
3: out from under my ear. <laughs> well,
0: that's thank great. you for your service, Marine. Well, that is.
3: Never mind. You all take care. Fly safely.
0: And and you as well. I'm going to close it out here, and uh, then we'll then we'll hang up. Wow, what a fun fun show. I'm sad. I'm immediately sad. Yes. Everybody that's listening on uh, Rumble, if you could do me a favor and. Subscribe to this channel, please, because once we get 100 subscribers, we no longer have to pay to broadcast. (laughs) Thank you to our sponsor, robinsbirdbraindesigns.com. Go there to get your custom etched slate coasters with your squadron logo and your call sign or airplane instruments and your tail number or any other organization. It's a nice custom gift for others as well. We have a glossary page, so if you heard a term on uh, today's show that you didn't understand, go to the sothereiwas.us.com and log in and go to the glossary page. If it's not there, write to us at repeat at so there I was.us or fig at so there I was.us and tell us what you want on the glossary page. We'll get it there. Once you subscribe, you'll also be able to see a links page, which will take you to the video links that we have uh, started recording. If you can listen on Apple Podcasts, go there and leave us a five-star review, please. Not four stars, not three, but five. <laughs> Thank you to Dave Hamilton, who's given us the technical know-how to do this show, and to Dos Gringos for their music. In the meantime, everybody, stay safe, and check six.
3: Take care. In the
2: world's smallest cockpit, on the tanker, through the weather. Oh, and to the uh, tanker crew who uh, did that. Thanks a lot. We really appreciated that. I'm just kidding.
1: No, I'm not. Well, there
2: I was, crossing the pond, and you could see that I wasn't
1: exactly fond. Discovery Houston, we've taken a look at the weather. Weatherman says it's going to hang in there. You have a go to Pro to Ops 302, go to Maneuver to Burn Attitude, and a go for the burn. Roger that. Go for the bus. Houston Discovery, we'll stop. Roger that, Discovery. Welcome back. Congratulations
3: on a super mission, and the world is looking forward to reaping the benefits of your good work over the next 15 years. Welcome back, guys, and we have no post-landing deltas.
1: Okay, thank you, Steve, and uh, we sure uh, enjoyed it also. It was great fun.